Welcome to Global Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. Guinea worm is not a disease that you hear about too often. It's what's known as a neglected tropical disease, an NTD. It's neglected in the sense that it it historically did not have the same kind of infrastructure to combat it as AIDS, TB, or malaria. It's tropical because it affects mostly sub-Saharan Africa and parts of Asia. And it's a disease because, well, it does pretty horrible things to the human body. My guest today is Adam Weiss, Associate Director of the Guinea Worm Eradication Program at the Carter Center. Back in the 1980s, Jimmy Carter and the Carter Center launched a program to combat guinea worm worldwide, and they've been exceedingly successful, reducing cases worldwide from the millions to fewer than 130 last year. In this episode of Global Dispatches, you will learn all about guinea worm, what it is, what it does to the body, how it's controlled, and what needs to be done to realize the promise of full worldwide eradication. You know, I'm glad to be shining a spotlight on this issue. Uh, it's kind of one of the things that we do here at Global Dispatches is take a look at topical global issues that maybe may not make the mainstream media's radar all the time and try to shine a spotlight on that. And this is one such program. All episodes are free. You can download at globaldispatchespodcast.com and all episodes are posted to UN Dispatch at undispatch.com. So here he is, Adam Weiss of the Carter Center. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Guinea worm is a waterborne parasite uh, that people get from drinking contaminated water. And how that water becomes contaminated is that someone with guinea worm disease, uh, which means that they have an emergent worm coming from somewhere on their body, if they were to expose that to stagnant water, that worm would release tens of thousands of larvae or eggs. Those larvae would in turn be picked up by copepods, which are water fleas existent in stagnant water everywhere in the world. Those little water fleas keep the larvae nice and warm and allow the larvae to grow to the third stage. At that point, those larvae are now infective to human beings. So anybody who comes and drinks water from that water source without filtering it or preventing that potential contamination would then ingest the infective larvae. Uh, Now for approximately 10 months, those larvae survive inside your body uh, where they will mate, the males will die, and the females will continue to mature. And at the 10-month to 14-month mark, that female will be ready to emerge from the body. Uh, What does that mean to emerge from the body? Does it it sound as sort of gruesome as as it sounds? (laughs) Uh, Even even worse. Uh, It doesn't burrow like some worms. 
but it essentially will trigger the immune system of the body. And by nature, our immune systems will create some type of swelling or perhaps a blister that might look like a pimple. And it will be very itchy and, and it will create a type of burning sensation. So people will rub and scratch and probably poke at it and break the skin. And it's at that point that the, emerge, uh, the worm emerges. Uh, it doesn't crawl, like I said, it doesn't burrow, uh, but because of the reaction from the body, it does allow the skin to kind of slough off and the worm is exposed. Uh, at that point, again, like I said, if it comes into contact with stagnant water, that's how that contamination cycle will continue. So a person literally has like a worm coming out of their body? That is a fact. And those worms can emerge from anywhere on the body. About 80% or so of worms emerge from the lower extremities. However, as those of us working with guinea worm, we've seen them come out of every possible location on the human body, uh, just making it more challenging and difficult because in order to help relieve the pain, you have to manually pull the worm out. And it's not just a simple tug on it once, like you're pulling up a piece of pasta on your plate, but you have to gradually roll it day after day, massage the area, trying to loosen up the worm so that you can pull it out. And that process can take anywhere from a few days to a few months. On average, two to three weeks. So you have to spend literally takes. weeks getting a worm pulled out of your body. Is there any other treatment? There is no other treatment. There's no vaccine. There's no cure. There are a number of different drugs that other uh, ne neglected tropical disease programs use for dewormers or to help reduce infections. But guinea worm is one of those parasites that is unaffected by, by any drug uh, that we know of so far. So is, is it deadly to the, to the human or is it just exceedingly painful or can it be both? It's not directly deadly. Uh, historically speaking, it's very debilitating. Now, bearing in mind that in 1986, there were around 3.5 million people with guinea worm, and as of the end of last year, there were only 126. So the pool of people that have the disease is significantly less, and so we're able to give them even that much more attention and, and care and support to reduce the worms from breaking as people try to pull on them. Uh, but in the days when there were a lot of cases, it tended to be much more debilitating. If worms do break off inside your body, if they happen to be wrapped around tendons or ligaments, which on your ankles or your knee is, is very common, uh, that can demobilize people for longer periods of time and then also result in kind of long-term immobility. You might not be able to fully extend your legs. So you might always walk with a limp or your arm may not fully extend. And so that was very commonplace. But it, it isn't a disease that kills. And that's actually one of the reasons why it's, it's even more neglected uh, because from a Western perspective, it doesn't kill people, so why, why would we concern ourselves with it? So you said that, that uh, about 30 years ago, there were 3.5 million people infected with guinea worm. This year, uh, last year, there were 126. Uh, That's correct. So how did, how did we get that dec decrease, decline, and where did the decline come from? Sure. When the Carter Center joined the campaign in 86 and, and took the leadership role in raising support, funding, 
and then also providing technical guidance. There were 21 endemic countries, if you include South Sudan. And all Which of didn't those, exist at the time. So, correct. Yeah. Uh, so 21 countries, most of which were in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, at the time, there were programs in India, Yemen, Pakistan, uh, where guinea worm disease was present. Uh, but again, most of, the, most of the countries were in West Africa, both West places like Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana, uh, Mali, Niger, Togo, Benin, Burkina Faso, uh, Nigeria, which was the most endemic country in 1986, um, having more than 600,000 cases alone. And then moving into Central Africa, Chad, uh, South Sudan, Sudan, and then over into East Africa, into Ethiopia, Uganda, and Kenya as as notable places of heavy endemic transmission. In terms of how we got and, and how the international community helped get to only 126 cases in 2014 is significant resource mobilization to empower local communities. Uh, the types of programs that are targeting guinea worm disease are all community-based, and so they rely on village volunteers, people from those endemic villages, helping each other, reporting people that have the disease, providing basic wound care if they have worms emerging, people that would be trained by the program how to help remove those worms as, as gently and quickly as possible. And, and helping to distribute various other interventions. Uh, we have received cloth well, filters can, and can I, can I, Yeah, can I ask actually, so, so there's no real like pill you can take. There's no, uh, so what does a prevention measure look like? Like how, how is guinea worm prevented in these places? If you've had like such a dramatic decline, what measures were implemented to, to you know, prevent the spread of, of this disease? Sure. Some of the key interventions include health education, uh, so just like telling people that this stagnant water is probably not good to bathe or drink in? That's correct. And and again, guinea worm is only obtained through the, the direct consumption of contaminated water. So ensuring that, first off, people don't enter the water source with the disease. And so that type of education, which really focuses on what are the? How do you get guinea worm in the first place? Where does guinea worm come from? And and helping them understand that life cycle. Because again, you have to bear in mind that uh, the populations that have this disease haven't been exposed to scientific education practices. Uh, many of these areas don't have schools in the first place, and so you you really have to start at the basic level of of how guinea worm is transmitted, and that type of education then is really focused at the community level. Uh, in terms of not just entering the water sources, but then what are some other ways that they can stop transmission of guinea worm? So again, most notably, reporting people that have the disease to the health structures that exist. Many of those health structures are provided by the program itself, and so they can report the case and, and receive free treatment uh, to help pull the worm out. They might receive a, a pain reliever, as well to reduce the, the itching and burning sensation uh, and pain that's associated with with having the disease. Uh, 
But then we also do provide cloth filters and pipe filters, which are used to then sieve the water. And those filtration, very simple filtration mechanisms, remove guinea worm. It doesn't make the water pure, but it does ensure that it's guinea worm free. Uh, we know that water, uh, providing safe potable water is very expensive, and, and this was a low-cost mechanism actually developed by nomads in, in northern Mali many years ago. A uh, very simple way, using a, a very simple cloth uh, on a pipe or something that they can wrap around their water pot where they store water at the household level, uh, again, to make sure that that water can be guinea worm free at a minimum. And and you said so that that's how the majority of these 3.5 million cases have been prevented uh, over the last say 30 years. Um, the 126 cases that happened last year, where did they occur? The remaining cases occurred in the four endemic countries, which are Ethiopia, Mali, Chad, and South Sudan. Most of those cases were in South Sudan. Uh, Seventy were reported there. And then next in line was Mali, which reported 40 cases. Is that a consequence of, of the um, conflicts that are ongoing in, in South Sudan and in northern Mali, that you know intervention efforts are harder to undertake when you know, populations are displaced, that sort of thing? It is very true that those conflicts do make it more challenging and difficult to to implement interventions, but we are fortunate in South Sudan, at least, that where guinea worm currently is found is not in the middle of, of the larger conflict that's occurring. Uh, most of those cases were in Eastern Equatoria State, which has been relatively isolated from the ethnic conflict that, that has been occurring. In Mali, it's a little bit different. Uh, the Much of the northern part of Mali is very much off-limits uh, we do have local staff that still function, though certainly under much more complicated uh, circumstances. Uh, but that being said, we are still implementing interventions in, in all of the areas that are known to have guinea worm. So really, despite conflict, uh, because we work at the community level, uh, oftentimes they themselves are demanding that they are provided with services like the guinea worm program. Um, so is guinea worm, is it possible to sort of globally eradicate guinea worm? I mean, it's not like a disease like polio that, you know, requires a human host to, um, to, to sort of stay alive, right? I mean, so is eradication, uh, you know, like scientifically possible? Uh, yes. Guinea worm disease was one of the diseases identified by the International Task Force for Disease Eradication, which is actually housed here at the Carter Center. Uh, because although it's a human host that allows guinea worm to survive, uh, once we break that transmission cycle, guinea worm cannot survive on its own outside of humans. There oh, okay, are different so. species of guinea worm that do affect snakes and raccoons and otters. Even here in the United States, there is a species of guinea worm, uh, but it's not Dracunculus metanensis, which is the type that affects human beings. So in terms of the, the different methods of dealing with diseases from control to elimination to eradication, uh, guinea worm disease is one that is eradicable.
and and it seems like you're very close, but I wonder, is it, I, I guess what seems different to me about say what you're describing, getting worm eradication, which I didn't really know much about before our conversation and something like polio, which I've, you know, read, you know, done interviews on before and, and, and mm-hmm. written about before is that at least with, you know, with polio, it seems almost much simpler in the sense that all you need to do is give a vaccine to a child. Whereas with guinea worm, you're talking about like behavior change. Like you need to teach people how to drink water differently, or, you know, it's, it's sort of all about education and behavior change as opposed to just getting a, a piece of medicine. And that seems like a much more difficult task, right? Absolutely. Uh, behavior change is, is kind of paramount to, in, in terms of the challenge public health people face all over the world. It doesn't matter what culture, what your environment looks like. It doesn't matter how many resources you have. Uh, even if you were to look at public health problems in the United States, we have all the knowledge, all the information, all the scientific studies, all the fancy communication strategies, and yet we don't exercise enough. Uh, we do drugs of different types, smoking, drinking, whatever it might be. And so we can see even here in, in our own environments how difficult behavior changes, let alone going into an environment where they don't have access to education, they don't have access to information. And so building trust and building respect and, and really empowering people to, to deal with problems in front of them is equally challenging. Uh, but on, on one hand, it can also be easier, even though it's behavior change and and the program itself has had to deal with that in so many different contexts, linguistic, cultural, environmental. Uh, because of the success of the program, uh, we can really showcase that it can be done. Uh, and once you start to get a little bit of buy-in from a community, it doesn't take very long for them to, to be successful. Uh, the, the thing that really works against us is the incubation period. With many diseases, uh, even Ebola, for example, where it spreads very quickly and its gestation period is very short, guinea worm takes 10 to 14 months. So that makes it really difficult to convince someone that's not scientific-minded to understand that I did something today and 10 to 14 months later I I got a disease because of what I did. And so, and that's an issue that plagues certain diseases in our environment today, uh, but more specifically, there aren't that many diseases that have such a long incubation period. And so that really does does affect our ability to convince people at the get-go. And so it does take more time to, to build that level of understanding. Well, I mean, it seems, though, that you've made, I mean, just immense, immense progress. I mean, down to 126 cases, you said. So what's it going to take to, um, you know, get those last, get that, like, last mile? I mean, it it seems that, you know, and again, I'm making a comparison to polio eradication, if I've mm-hmm. written about it a bit more, you know, where they talk about how that last mile is just much, much more difficult to get to the hardest to reach places than it was, you know, to get, you know, to the, to the people who are more willing and more able to get vaccinated. I mean, how do you, how do you reach those hardest to reach places and what will eradication eventually require? Sure. I think right now, the foremost challenge is peace. As I mentioned earlier, the guinea worm programs in each of those four countries have access to the areas where 
we know guinea worm exists. If we were to lose access in, in the support that we provide to those countries to eradicate guinea worm, then absolutely any kind of timeline that people want to draw up for when, when this is going to be done or when it ought to be done get thrown out the door. And so if we don't have peace in, in those four countries so that we have sustained access for the next couple years, because really we're talking about we finishing the eradication campaign within the next two to three years. And so the end is, is clearly in sight in terms of raw numbers, but also in terms of the types of relationships that we have with the communities where guinea worm still exists. Uh, we know these areas very well. And so if we can keep, maintain access to them, I do think that the the end is, is simply in, inevitable. But challenges, additional challenges persist, um, again, notably safe water provision. Some of the areas where we work, there is an accessible groundwater table, uh, but different partners that work in the water sector for various reasons might not be able to, to move their, their machines there and provide safe water. And so I think that's that's something that, that does stand in our way to some extent. Uh, but we've also proven to the international community that safe water is not a prerequisite for eradicating guinea worm, since we can do it with very simple technologies. Uh, but certainly in terms of what we owe as an international community to all of these populations, people should have access to safe water. And so we, too, as a program in the support we provide is to continue to advocate for that safe water. Uh, well, Adam, thank you so much for your time. This was super interesting. And, uh, you know, I'm glad to learn so much about guinea worm eradication. Thank you as well. It was very nice speaking with you. All right. Thank you, Adam. Thank you all for listening. And I love to put these things in perspective. I mean, you have this disease that has been plaguing humanity for millennia. In the last 30 years, we are this close to totally wiping it off the face of the earth. That's pretty amazing. An amazing story for humanity, I think. And man, I would love to interview President Jimmy Carter about how he got this idea to take on NTDs like guinea worm. So let that be a goal for this podcast, interview former President Jimmy Carter. I've interviewed his UN ambassador. Go check out uh, the episode with Andrew Young. Now there's an impressive human being. Okay, we'll talk to you later. Bye.